What gives a place its sense of place? How is it that some books make you feel like you have actually traveled somewhere, visited a particular town and time? What distinguishes music with a strong regional flavor from a generic top 40 hit? And what's the difference between a chili dog from your hometown and a chili dog from mine? All these little things add up to one big question. Where are y'all from? What you drinking? This is a uh, Manhattan with a little bit of Amaro, which is a bitter Italian liqueur. I like how you go right ahead and tell me what that is, because you know I don't know. And because I can see your face in the Zoom, I'm very perplexed. <laughs> I'm having a spritzer. Oh. If it were pink, I'd basically be mom right now, but <laughs> I'm not quite there yet. It's white, just because it's Monday and... It's kind of springy, nice weather out, so I try to shift over to, you know, water down my beverages a bit, at least on a weekday. Yeah, so I have the last of the frozen cherries in my spritzer mm. in the hopes that new ones will be available soon, usually by mid-May. It's always a countdown to the cherries for me. At the end of the summer, I throw some in the freezer just so I can hoard them for cocktails and stuff. Smart. Should we admit Dwayne? Yes. Okay. Dwayne, what's up, man? You're on mute. I was just telling Chris how tech savvy you were. And <laughs> he said, what's up? Now you're he's, on mute again. You're still on mute. There, there we go. go. There you there go. go. There we go. We don't, I, we've been in person all year, so I haven't done any of these Zoom meetings. Well, you're in the, uh, the rare minority then for sure. Yeah. South Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> I will suppress background noise because dogs are barking and children are screaming or child is screaming. I'm sure all of our listeners are used to being interrupted digitally by dogs and children. And yeah. although your children is old enough to be past the screaming age, what's what one, that? One, one would think. Yes. One would think. <laughs> all right. Well, our guest today is Dwayne Lawson. And Dwayne is a good friend of mine from way back. We went to college together. He is actually married to my best friend, Dr. Bridget, but she's going to get her own episode eventually. So we'll do her bio then. And today we're just talking about Dwayne. But it is worth mentioning that um, Bridget and Dwayne had been friends all through college, our four years at Transylvania University. But our senior year, Bridget and I were roommates. And Dwayne started coming around a lot, like a lot, a lot. <laughs> and then I started noticing he was there at all hours of the day, night, first thing in the morning. And so I was like, oh, so this is the thing now. But it was like very end of senior year. And I think the plan was, correct me if I'm wrong here, Bridget was going to go to Illinois for grad school, but you were going to go back to Tennessee, right? Right. Yeah. And, uh, and I think I that you did briefly. That lasted yeah. for maybe five minutes, a couple of weeks. <laughs> yeah. and then, yeah, two weeks, I think. Yeah. And then Dwayne went on to Illinois. So uh, Tennessee's loss, I guess. But uh, Dwayne is from Halls, Tennessee, which is outside of Knoxville. And after four years at Transylvania, he moved 
as I said, to Illinois, and he's an educator. He has years and years of teaching experience. He's been a teacher in Illinois and Georgia and now South Carolina. Uh, he's a big UT fan. He does a great uh, Rocky Top interpretive <laughs> dance, which sadly we can't see on a podcast. And uh, I, what, what I think of when I think of Dwayne or what I tell people about Dwayne is that he knows more things about a wider range of topics than anybody I know. And like, honestly, if there's something I want to know and I can't find on Google, I would just call Dwayne. I think uh, eventually once we get this podcast like nice and established and we have things like regular segments and recurring guests, I think we should have a, a segment that we'll call Ask Mr. Lawson and we'll just have him on for like 10 minutes a show and let people call in and ask him anything literally that they want. So I was listening to your episode with Corey and you're talking about some like cultural things and political things. And I was like, Oh, I think I actually might have some thoughts on some of those things. I'm so. sure you have thoughts on all the. Th in fact, when I was saying, Oh, we need a guest for next week and needs to be somebody we can talk to without a whole lot of preparation because we were kind of short on time. Da, 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 da. I, I rambled off a couple of people and, mentioned your name among them and Jeremy said 1000% you should ask Wayne. <laughs> it was just like not even a question. So anyway, thank you for being here and for uh, repping Tennessee tonight. You're our first non-Kentuckian to be on the show. So proud. Dwayne, you're going to have to tell, tell us about growing up there um, kind of in Knoxville, but not really in Knoxville proper. Knoxville's and Knox County are kind of weird places. It's, they have two separate governments. And uh, you have a lot of pride, I think, based on if you are a county person or if you are a city person. So if you're from Knox County, you're not inside the city limits. You're a, you know, you're a county person. If you're inside the city limits, you're, you know, you have that city mentality. Um, so, I, you know, we put Knoxville on our envelopes and, you know, we tell people we're from Knoxville. But um, Paul's wasn't Knoxville. I mean, it was its own separate community we had our own little newspaper um it felt like going into town was kind of a trek even though it was maybe 15 minute drive um to get to knoxville proper to the mall or you know something like that or to go downtown um but you know i was thinking about you you sort of sent some things to think about about what we were talking about today and i didn't get into the city very much um, we didn't, my family were transplants to Knoxville. They're from the, the hills of right on, Campbell County, which is right on the border of Kentucky and Tennessee. And they are from a little small town. Uh, my dad's from Pioneer, which is an exit off I-75. My mom's from Royal Blue, which is an exit off I-75 in Campbell County. Coal communities, all of them were, were coal camp kind of places. Um, I heard Corey talking about being paid in script last week and mm -hmm. my my papa low was paid in script and the house they lived in was owned by the coal company the groceries they bought were bought with script at the store that was owned by the coal company um and yet people still love the coal companies in that area which is i i, I, I don't quite understand that fascination with the coal companies and how well they treat people when for generations, mm -hmm. they abuse their workers with 
tactics like that and busting unions and those sort of things. But my whole youth was spent going back to Campbell County. So on Sunday mornings, we would go back to Campbell County. Um, we might go occasionally to the mall or, or something like that in, in town, but I was more of a not in Knoxville person than a, than a Knoxville person for sure. So halls itself, halls proper, if you will, other than having a newspaper, what else is there? Like give us the flavor, local kitsch well, or I mean, personality. 2021 halls and 1995 halls are completely different. Um, it's just, it's, there's a lot more people. Traffic is a lot worse. It's just like any other place. Since it's just a little bit outside the, the city, I think real estate's probably just a little bit cheaper. Um, the high school's pretty good. Still part of the Knox County school system, but it's a pretty good high school. So I think there's a lot of people that kind of moved out to go to that. Um, I think it's, it's a very, like a lot of places in Tennessee, a lot of small towns across the country, really, especially in the South, it's very football driven, even though the team has not really been all that good since I graduated. I had nothing to do with that, by the way, but they haven't been good since um, about the time I graduated, the year after I graduated. Um, Sonic is hopping. Um, <laughs> they built a brand new Walmarts. Um, Notice the plural there. Ago. That's important. <laughs> yes, That's right. Yes, of course. It seems like there is a an, an interesting dynamic in halls. I always thought growing up because you had really rural like country people and then you had like and, and a lot of those people like like me like I lived in a trailer park for a while lived in an apartment for a while um, parents that didn't go to college worked really hard my dad was a very blue collar very solid work but you know we didn't have a lot and then you had the country club set which was also part of the community as well and I always felt like there was a really, really weird dynamic, especially in the high school when you started to see those things. Like no one noticed when they were like in second grade about those things, but you really started to pick up on it when you were in middle school and high school, um, cars you drove and parties that people were going to and, and those sort of things. Um, and I think that dynamic probably still exists a little bit um, today to some degree. It's also a very not diverse place. Um, I think there were about 1,100 people that went to my high school, and there were probably, of that 1,100, maybe 10 to 12 people of color. Um, Sounds a lot like London. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I'd so, say in my, my high school, at least at my time, I'd say we had fewer than 10 to 12. Chris was a little bit later than me, but. And then, of course, going to Transy, it wasn't, you know, much, much different um, there either. <laughs> Yeah, so say a little more about how as a first-generation college student or as a first-opportunity college student, as Dr. Bridget likes to say, but again, we'll talk about that on her episode because it's very important concept and distinction, but as a first-opportunity college student who grew up in small-town Tennessee with roots in cold-town Tennessee, how did you end up going not only out of state but to a private university? Um, I've always been interested in reading. Um, I felt like my parents sacrificed a lot to give me some opportunities. Um, we had an encyclopedia set when I was a kid, as we, you know, once upon a time when people had encyclopedia sets in their home. Um, and I read that all the time. That's like uh, Google uh, and book forum children. 
Yeah, Wikipedia, except in book form, yeah. <laughs> they always encouraged me. I never felt like um, that high school, which was their end game. Both of my parents were just high school graduates, and I'm not saying that's bad. I, I don't mean just high school graduates, but they only graduate from high school. Um, and that never was their end game for me. Never felt like that was – I never felt like they would be satisfied if I would have just stopped in 12th grade. Um, listen to my college counselors and um, had some friends that were fairly intelligent too. And I think the crowd you, you pal around with has a big influence on your formative years. And I was you know, lucky enough to have a lot of really good friends who weren't doing a lot of things you probably weren't supposed to be doing and you know, were very proud to be dorks and um, didn't mind being smart and took the ACT and did pretty well on it. And um, I'd gotten a random piece of mail. This is a true story. I'd gotten a random piece of mail from a weird named school in Kentucky. <laughs> and since I was going to Tennessee anyways, and I was going to play in the band and be in the pet band and, you know, go to all the football games and basketball games like I'd always thought about doing, uh, as a joke, put down a random school to send my ACT scores to. And that random school was Transylvania University. And I happened to do really well on the ACT. And the next thing you know, I guess they thought I was actually interested and they started giving me money. And, uh, I, you know, I ended up going there and it was just, it was close by like, you know, Lexington and Knoxville are not that far apart. They seem like they're worlds apart, but they're only about two, two and a half hours apart. Um, so I felt like I was still close to home, but I was far enough away that I could, you know, have a little bit of freedom, but close enough that if I woke up on Saturday morning and had no clothes, I'd go home and do laundry very serendipitous how I ended up there but you know I, I wouldn't change anything I, I talk to my students about that all the time about you know this random decision I made in 1996 is why I'm, I'm teaching you right now and to kind of you know help them understand especially in history class how random events in history can have these long effects throughout time now you know figure the best way to do that sometimes is to make it really personal and that's one of the examples I give them. Well, and when I talk about you, how much you know about so many things that are seemingly random, I think it probably is because you are such a student of history. You were just talking about your, your historical perspective, I think, on everything. And the truth is you can't learn about history without learning about other things, right? So yeah. you have always just immersed yourself so much in the the historical that I think by, by extension, you've just learned about other things. Fair. Yeah. I learned, I learned long ago that not all of your students are going to love history as much as you will. I had a, a high school teacher tell me that, that uh, if I went into teaching thinking all my students were going to love my subject as much as I did, I would hate my job. Um, and that's true because they're not all going to love it, but you know, you have to show them how things connect and you have to just show them that, you know, for me, outside of the whole history stuff, it's just that I care about them as people. I actually had a student today say something. They're like, you know, you actually care about us, don't you? And I'm like, well, I said, most of you. And I was kind of, but I have that recorded. <laughs> um, because that's what, you know, if they don't think you care about them, then they're not going to listen to you anyway. So. So I know you just mentioned you got the advice um, to kind of temper your expectations in terms of your students' love of your subject, but um, what other teachers or adults from your hometown made you want to be a teacher? Um, well, I think the, really the biggest influence for me 
uh, I had an aunt and an uncle who were both teachers. Um, my mom's brother and my mom's sister, one was a high school teacher, the other was an elementary school teacher. And especially my uncle, uh, I did and still do look up to him a lot um, as just a person. Uh, very, very fine, fine person. Uh, loved in the community. He's lived in the community that he's taught in for. I mean, he's retired now, but he taught 47 or 48 years or something like that. Three or four generations of kids that he taught. And so that gave me some, kind of a, a view of what a competent educator could do um, and how they could make a difference in their communities. And um, that model was always something that I strive for. Plus, I, I really loved him, and I still do, but I mean, I really looked up to him too. Just, um, you know, I've, I've strayed from this as I've gotten older, but um, he was the chairman of that county, the Campbell County Republican Party. And we did all kinds of Republican events in the in the 90s and, you know, got me immersed in that kind of kind of culture a little bit, just hobnobbing, shaking hands and, you know, meeting people that were sort of influential, not that it helped my advancement in my life anyway, but um, this kind of helped me realize that you know, this, this was a different world that was out there that I didn't really see at home with my parents. They were not political at all. Um, and how it was attainable for someone because my uncle grew up in the same conditions that my mom grew up in a, in a, you know, small house owned by a coal company. And if he could do that, then I could do it too. And you've lived in small towns, obviously halls and, um, Georgia, now you're in South Carolina, we talked about Illinois. Do you find some common thread in all those towns or do you think that it varies by region? I think that the East Tennessee, you know, Appalachia's is a, its own thing. Um, and you all know that. Um, it's, there's a, a uniqueness, a, almost a spitefulness to outsiders in some ways. Um, very weary of, of 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 an outsider and that's all you know you say a stereotypical Appalachian stuff but it's also true um you know my uncle the same person I was talking about that can't the Campbell County area is really changing it's having a lot of growth a lot of outsiders coming in I think that's especially evident in just the Appalachian mindset because they've always been abused and taken advantage of by outsiders throughout the region's history um, even going back to the, the, the settlers, you know, taking advantage of, of the Native American culture. So um, I definitely think there's a difference in, in Appalachia. But when you're talking about small town, you know, not university town, Illinois, where Bridget went to grad school and where I live with her, but um, like just outside the university, small little towns like St. Joseph and Muhammad, um, Rantoul, those places are no different than central South Carolina or Forsyth, Georgia, um, where people know everybody around. It's people watch out for their neighbors. Something's out of the ordinary. People notice it. If uh, your lights stay on too long, you know, it's going to be like the Harper Valley PTA thing. And, you know, they're noticing they're bringing extra stuff in at night or whatever. Um, Although I, I would wager any amount of money that, no town in the south is going to be called Muhammad. Not Muhammad, Muhammad. Oh, excuse me. Okay. A little different, yeah. 
Um, I didn't know that either. I, and I've even been to visit you there. I heard, I heard Muhammad That was next well. door. I think it's that was- It's too close to uh, Muhammad. They would never name it Muhammad. Yeah, it's, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but and to me, the hardest things, I was very Southern in college, more than I thought in high school. And the idea of moving to the North when Bridget started grad school was so like, I was so against it. I wanted to go to North Carolina so we could stay in the South. Um, did not want her to go to Illinois. It was the best place for her. It's the best school, um, best offer and all those sort of things. But I didn't want to hear anything of it. And when I finally chose to move there, and you just kind of go around, you know, just go into the grocery store, out and about, the people were the people. You know, the people in line at, at the grocery store that I would talk to, maybe they weren't used to like some rando just talking to them like I did, but um, they were still receptive and still friendly. And so that's, that's universal, any small town, I think. Um, Jacob and I, my son, we drove all the way to Oregon four summers ago, five summers ago. Stayed Stopped at my house in Kansas, Kansas City. Yes. Yeah. Twice. Um, for, for pit stops. And we're at this random small grocery store in Montana. And when people found out we were from Georgia and that we had driven across the country, they were amazed by that and just as friendly. So that, that scene could have been played anywhere else I'd ever lived. Um, I think there's just that commonality when you get to small towns. That's very true. And I kind of want to circle back to what you said earlier about, um, well, a, a couple different things that are linked in my head. You talk, first of all, about how in Appalachia, there's this, this fear of outsiders. So in spite of that really close-knit local community feel where everybody cares about everybody, you've also got this sense of like anywhere from, or anybody from elsewhere is going to be sus, right? As the kids would call it today, automatically sus. Yeah. There's a mistrust. Yeah. Because as you said, that that those populations, particularly in coal country, have been really marginalized in a lot of ways by outsiders, by and and still to this day are looked down upon by people from elsewhere, other parts of the world. And it to me, that's really connected with the issue of that that romanticizing of the coal industry, even though they really treated people horribly that sense of like, oh, but coal's going to come back and that voting against your own interest to put people in office that promise they're going to bring back coal. And it's so, it's so maddening and heartbreaking to watch that cycle go around and around again. So how can those communities move forward economically and environmentally when they have so many good and redeeming things to their credit, but they can't let go of that kind of backward looking history i don't think they can um and that's not an i'm not trying to be uh pessimistic on this i i don't think that it's possible when you look at something so longingly and and you build it up and you think that you're going to go back to it that you can you can't move past that until you realize that it's not going to be the way it was um and those, particularly Eastern Kentucky, and, you know, I'm very invested in, in, in Kentucky as well. Just a lot of, you know, our friends live there. You live there. Bridget's from there. Um, 
as much as I hate the University of, I still love the state of <laughs> um, Kentucky. And you, you've got a whole population who, for better or for worse, was completely dependent upon that industry for years and years and years. Um, and, and we're not just talking about the miners. We're talking about, you know, my, my dad's dad was a railroad guy. Um, what did that railroad carry? Coal. Um, so those populations where everyone was dependent on it, the stores, the, the school, you know, the teachers were dependent on the students being there because their parents were in the industry. Um, and until you give an option that, like for example, you didn't have to have any kind of education to work in a coal mine. But there's jobs now. We, we push education on people, and and you know I'm a big fan of education. I'm an educator. Um, I like people going to college. I think expanding your mind and your horizons is always a good thing. But until there's going to be some kind of a career path for people who just want to work and do honest, good work that doesn't require an education above high school, um, it's going to be hard to break off those cycles. Well, Corey, have, of course, you you... Corey, he and I used to talk a lot about just the uniqueness of that area, the coal history, uh, which our dad was in the coal industry, but all four of our grandparents were farmers. Like we, we were not from the coal miners uh, per mm -hmm. se of Eastern Kentucky, but um, it's just this strange confluence of like natural resources and just crazy devoted work ethic of the people there that like led to this boom. And I think uh, whether you're in California or Kentucky, it's not a healthy thing for any one area to depend on one industry or one company yeah. uh, for its survival. I saw that in Illinois. I taught at a small Catholic school in a city called Danville, which is right on the Indiana border. And that was dependent upon, I believe it was GM. There was, a, I think, a parts factory and maybe even a manu an automobile manufacturing plant in Danville that completely left. I mean, they left, closed everything. And that town is just disappearing. It, it was disappearing when I taught there. And since I've been gone, it's, it's even, you know, gotten more disappeared. They had, I think, three major employers, like blue collar, high paying manufacturing jobs. The plants just shut down. And it, you can't replace a $25 an hour manufacturing job. Those, you can, those don't just pop up out of nowhere. Um, and a lot of those workers had very little education to fall back on. And so they either left the community or had to sell their houses or downsize or, or whatever the case was. Well, you mentioned uh, that you have not been virtual for, you're one of the only teachers I've ever I've spoken with this year uh, who hasn't been virtual, but um, you still probably have your your uh, fair share of challenges uh, emerging from this year we've all had. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges you think educators are facing, and how can communities support teachers and students? Um, to me, the support I'll I'll talk about the support first. Um, just patience and grace. I think that's the two things that you need to have with your students and the school systems or, or whoever is patience and grace. Um, I've had instances this year where I've had students who have been excluded. So we did the six feet thing and let's say student X has been tested positive and all the students who sat around them, um, three or four, however it might be, um, 
would be excluded for 10 days to see if they would catch it. And luckily, I can say this, we've not had a single student who has been excluded this year at my school. We've not had a single student who has contracted COVID um, in the excluded setting. So that's, you know, but we've been very good about masking up and, and keeping that distance and, and those sort of things. Um, but when you have six kids who are absent from your, um, your class and um, are trying to teach and then knowing that those six kids won't be there for 10 days, the ones that aren't super motivated to catch up or stay caught up are not, it's going to take a lot. And I'm dealing with that right now with several students. So we have to, as educators, have to show grace to the students. Um, I think as a society, we can't get so wrapped up in, you know, oh, the kids are falling behind because their test scores are lower. Um, if all we're going to base progress is, is on test scores, which I know there's a lot of people that say that's all you can do, but, you know, our kids are not one-dimensional, um, then of course those test scores are going to be behind. But like what other skills have they learned in this year? Your mom passed away in a living facility, a memory care facility. Mm -hmm. And it was in the early days of this thing when you couldn't go visit her. Your dad couldn't go visit her. And so right. the, I, I think there are so many stories like that of people that were maybe we call indirect casualties. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. Right. Um, you know, that just looking back on that, it's just so surreal. Um, and, you know, to the credit of the nursing home, they, when it became pretty obvious that she was, you know, going to die, they let him back in there, probably mm. breaking protocol, I would imagine. Um, you know, they did let him back in there for that. Um, I think it would have killed him had he not been there. Like, I don't think he would still be with me if mm. he hadn't have been able to go in there and be with her. And maybe that's one of those small town qualities that, uh, you know, in another place, in another kind of place, another kind of community, mm -hmm. it might've been strict protocol. Sorry, sir. You can't be here right now. It's the rules. To circle around to how we typically would close an episode. Tell us about your favorite food from home. What's something famous to Halls, Tennessee or Knoxville even, or just near and dear to your heart that you can't get anywhere else? I was thinking about this question and I realized that when I was a kid, I, I did not, and this is a true story, did not eat at a sit-down restaurant until I was 17 years old. Wow. Um, so I, I didn't know about tipping. We used to order in like... Um, pizza hut and we would get delivery and I would give them exact change for what the pizza cost and I thought I was doing them a favor because they didn't have to carry child. I was like oh if it's eight dollars and 37 cents here's the exactly eight dollars and 37 cents so you don't have to make change have a great night um did not realize until I got to college that you were supposed to tip delivery drivers um, so God only knows what happened to those pizzas between <laughs> the Pizza Hut and the Lawson residents. Big Eaton's for the Lawson's was 12-pack of crystals. Mm. Okay. Um, mustard only, no onions, no pickles, just mustard only. Um, and you say you can't get anywhere else. I mean, I can't get crystals even in South Carolina. So to me, that is a, 
a matter of fact, I, I went to see my dad for the only, uh, only the second time since COVID started uh, a couple weeks ago, this past two weekends ago. And sure enough, what did I get when I got there? I went to Crystal, the same Crystal that I was there when I was, you know, a kid. When we talk about our hometown food and our guests, it's always so far, all we got is hamburgers and hot dogs. Everyone's got their famous or their favorite little greasy spoon hole in the wall. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hamburgers, an easy thing to do, a hot dogs, an easy thing to do, but we take ownership. It's ours. Well, this has been our maybe first installment of Ask Mr. Lawson, <laughs> if nothing else. And we'll look forward to having you back again sometime. Thank you. It was a pleasure.